Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. I had developed a particular fondness for Shohaku Okamura Sensei for a number of reasons. He had led the first session I had ever participated in several years earlier, and I had had my first dokusan with him the one-to-one meeting between teacher and student. Having felt intimidated and in awe of him at that time, I discovered that he was really very gentle and humble without any of the harshness expected of the Japanese master. Instead, he had an infectious enthusiasm for Zen, Zazen, and Dogen. In fact, he is certainly the most important resource for Dogen studies in America. Dogen, the 13th century founder of Soto Zen in Japan, was one of the greatest delights of my own tradition. A passage of his famous Genjo Koan, just to take an example, reads like this. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. This passage always reminds me of sitting still in the woods and letting its inhabitants exhibit themselves to me by turns. But Dogen could also be one of the least approachable delights of my tradition. After reading and studying Dogen for years, I was still surprised how obscure the more obscure passages could be on first encounter, almost like the babbling of a solitary wino, mumbling about fish darting, present doubts as opposed to previous doubts, sometime things, hindering existences, skulls glowing from within, and time flowing every which way. Undaunted, I would reread the passage again and again and begin to connect phrases, and a vague sense of the general topic would emerge. All at once, zappo! It would be as if I suddenly peered seven and a half centuries through time, space, and culture right into that amazing mind. In Uji, he reveals the absurdity of a fundamental but previously unaddressed way in which we sustain a false sense of self by imagining that the same self can be found at distinct times, past, present, and future as if existence can ever be made independent of time in this way, as if a wave could be ripped out of one water and placed into another. I came to think of Dogen as Mr. Non-Duality, 
and Nagarjuna as Mr. Emptiness, but not at all like the opportunistically non-dualistic philosopher hippies I used to know long ago. Stealing? That's so dualistic, man. You can't, like, own a banana. No, Dogen's non-dualism simply incorporated any dualism you can or would want to shake a stick at. Words and letters? Fine. Dogen's was the seamless merging of form and emptiness, a strict adherence to form, to ritual, to convention, to tradition, and at the same time the relinquishing of any sense of self, of goal, viewing all action devoid of doer or done, possessing only appropriateness of response. Okamura had attracted some very distinguished students to Bloomington, Indiana, and I made a number of trips to Bloomington myself, including a one-month trip in which I met with Shohaku one-on-one every morning to discuss Dogen, whom I spent the rest of the day reading and pondering. Okamura's teacher in Japan had been Uchiyama Roshi, a demanding meditation teacher, but not as demanding as his teacher, Homeless Kodo Roshi, who expected monks to sit all night during Sashin, yet had the leniency not to hit them with a stick if they dozed off while sitting in one of the wee hours. Kodo and Uchiyama Roshis were both monks in the old style with no wife and kids, with nothing in their lives outside of Buddhist practice and understanding. Okumura had also lived most of his youth that way, but was now married with children, as are almost all modern priests in Japan. In one of Uchiyama's writings, he had laid out seven points of practice for the Zen life. The fourth, as I first read it, stopped me dead. This was, Live by vow and root it deeply. For me, this was the infamous red-hot iron ball that I could neither swallow nor spit out. I had always been a keep-my-options-open guy, a don't-paint-yourself-into-a-corner chap, and so would have willingly spit it out. Yet this phrase seems so direct, so simple, so what I seem to be doing in any case. So I thought maybe I should swallow it. This koan would stick in my throat for years. It would burn and vex. How did it happen that American Buddhists like Flint and Barbara, Shoryu, Colin, and I quickly gained a monopoly on real Buddhism? For that is how it seemed. We in the West certainly don't seem to have gained much of a handle on Christianity over many centuries. And the average citizen is pretty clueless about science, history, and almost everything else outside of popular entertainment. Yet we were meditating and studying the self and forgetting the self, while people in Asian temples were burning money and appeasing spirits through elaborate rituals. How were we the ones to arrive at this precise understanding of something as sophisticated and refined as Buddhist thought and practice. True American Buddhists tend to be much more highly educated 
than the general population, but I fear there may be another answer. American Buddhists have for the most part been teaching Buddhism to each other and reading each other's books. What if we've been drifting off in our own self-contained cultic bubble of self-reassured misconstrual? How would we know? I decidedly boldly to venture where few had dared, at least tentatively, to become more familiar with Asian Buddhist communities, hopefully to learn what jewels of wisdom might be discovered there to take home. I visited a large Taiwanese temple in Austin on the occasion of a Buddha Day celebration, along with a couple of people from the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, who were also a bit curious. I joined the chanting in the huge shrine hall, led by nuns whose voices were amplified and who accompanied the voices on instruments already familiar to me, but much bigger than those at the Zen Center. Chanting was in Chinese, but a parallel, conveniently Romanized text allowed me to attempt to mumble along. Every once in a while, the whole congregation would drop to its knees and bow at seemingly arbitrary points in the chanting. So I dropped to mine a little behind each time and bowed about the same time they were already standing up. Afterwards, in the plaza in the front of the hall, we were treated to dancing dragons, acrobats, and other splendid spectacles. We were able to buy lunch from various families, each of whom had brought some delight to offer for sale as a fundraiser. I dined and chatted with some Chinese devotees. Wandering around, I discovered at the doors to the shrine hall two huge copper engravings, one of which depicted a scene I recognized from Zen lore, the Buddha holding up a flower and Kasapa smiling. Somebody explained to me that the temple offered a combination of Chan, Chinese Zen, and Pure Land, apparently a popular combination in China, and that the other engraving featured Amitabha Buddha the Buddha of the Pure Land sect. There was also a Burmese temple in Austin. I found out about it through Wendy, an early visitor to the Zen Center. Whereas the Taiwanese temple was splendid and lavish, the Burmese was just a couple of house trailers in unkempt woods in which four moderately kempt monks lived very quietly. I had never really conversed with monks before. An older monk, whose name I would learn was Ashin Mahosada Pandita, seemed to speak no English, but had a perpetual smile that he put to good use. Three younger monks spoke English well, one of them taller than the rest, but particularly well, even with a bit of a British accent. It turned out that Ashin Punobasa was all but dissertation at a university in India and had come to America in order to have the leisure to work on it. These seemed to be Asians who knew a lot about Buddhism and were as strikingly warm and welcoming as they were exotic. I didn't suppose they thought of me as anything like them. 
I had worn my rakasu with black clothes, had a shaved head like them, and had explained that I was a priest from the Austin Zen Center. They, on the other hand, were robed from head to foot in burgundy, with right shoulders bared. On a second visit, I brought my okesa, the large formal robe, perhaps to convince them I was, in a sense, kind of one of them, and unfolded it to demonstrate how Zen priests wear it. I was impressed myself that, in spite of nearly two millennia of historical separation, our robes were constructed remarkably in the same basic rice field pattern composed of overlapping interlocking strips that, it is said, the Buddha and Ananda had once worked out. They were impressed that we sewed our own. Theirs came from a factory in Myanmar. They had no hint of hubris, nor need to assert their comparative purity of their own tradition or practice, only a lively curiosity about mine. I soon thereafter invited the monks to come to the Zen Center, where Barbara greeted them. They were very curious about all of the trappings, the instruments that accompanied our chanting, what language we chanted in, the various sculpted bodhisattvas like Manjushri threateningly flashing his sword over his head, the sword that famously cuts through delusion, the great number of cushions in our meditation hall, the smiling older monk, not following the English conversation, simply plopped down on a zafu in the zendo and sat, smiling as always. Ashin Punobasa perked up upon learning that one of our members, Greg, was about to begin teaching a class in Nagarjuna, the second-century Indian philosopher-monk who wrote a book on emptiness. I was astonished when this Theravada monk declared that he was writing his dissertation on exactly that topic, on someone commonly regarded as the father of Mahayana Buddhism. He enrolled in Greg's class on the spot, and Barbara waived the registration fee for this eminent addition to the roster. I did not participate in the class, but learned that between Ashin Punobasa and Greg, both very bright and outspoken lovers of ideas, it was very invigorating for all. I was personally thrilled at the legitimacy bestowed upon the Austin Zen Center by a Theravada Buddhist monk stepping out of a car in full robes to enter the classroom across the street. You could not get more Buddhist nor exotic than that. Outspokenness and debate, I would one day learn, are not common Burmese endowments but rather unique to Ashin Punobasa. I heard some months later that he had been invited as a Buddhist representative to an interfaith event, which Greg had also attended. Greg reported that the entire gathering had been stunned when during the Q&A after one of the presentations, Ashin Punobasa had raised his hand and posed the question, I don't understand what the evidence is for this God thing. It turned out that Ashin Punobasa had 
all the time been balking, suffering from writer's or researcher's block, as many PhD candidates do. However, Greg's class apparently stimulated him so much that a short time later he was back in India to defend his dissertation and was thereby lost to Austin. I got word that Punobasa had finally returned to Myanmar. Soon a new monk had come from a monastery in Florida to assume responsibilities as abbot of the monastery in Austin, Ashin Ariadamma, who showed me a picture he had received from Myanmar of Dr. Punobasa standing next to his much shorter father, who for his part had also recently ordained as a monk and who was dressed in the same burgundy robes as his less wrinkled and now much more senior son. One hot April day, a few people from the Zen Center drove to the Burmese monastery to attend the water festival I had heard about from Wendy. We pulled up, and I was astonished to see such a great crowd milling around what had always been such a sleepy place before. Hearing very exotic music in the background, I led the group through a little passageway between the kitchen and one of the trailers, and as soon as I reached an open space, a complete stranger, short of stature and dark of skin, dumped a whole pitcher of water on me in one splash, clarifying why this was called the Water Festival. Looking around, I saw water sloshing this way and that, and squirt guns ablaze in the hands of youngsters. Another stranger immediately undertook to orienting our little troop of foreigners, showing us where to place our shoes before stepping on the deck and recommending that we begin, as most people apparently did, by paying our respects to the monks before enjoying the festivities. The monks sat in the shrine room as families came and went, bowing to the monks upon entry, waiting their turn to chat with one monk or another, and then bowing upon exit. Ashin Ariadama recognized me while we did bows, and smilingly waved our group over, taking me by the hand as we seated ourselves. Outside, they were making use of a karaoke machine programmed with Burmese tunes, to which people were taking turns on stage displaying their talents in either dancing or singing, the dancers almost all women but of all ages. Food was prepared in the large kitchen or brought from home and offered first to the monks and then to hungry revelers. The hospitality was exemplary and the food was delicious. In San Antonio, I visited a Vietnamese temple after being asked to lead a one-day meditation retreat that an American sitting group had organized. I spotted some monks as we entered to begin our retreat and had a chance to talk with a couple of them at the end of the day. I noticed that one who spoke the best English was dressed differently than the rest and asked him about this. I'm Tibetan, he replied. Tibetan? How did that happen? This is a Vietnamese monastery. I noticed that too. I used to live in a Tibetan monastery in southern India. We organized a chanting tour in America and Europe to raise some money. When we performed in San Antonio, we were invited 
to stay here at this monastery. A couple of years ago, I thought I might like to live in the United States, and I remembered how much I liked everybody here. I wrote and asked if I could come to live here, and they said yes. Devin, the proprietor of the Clear Spring Yoga Studio, where Flint's pre-Austin Zen Center sitting group used to meet, once invited a group of Tibetan monks on chanting and mandala tour to sleep in the southern branch of her yoga studio. She peeked in on them during the night to see how they were doing and remarked that they looked like puppies curled up sleeping together. I later visited the website of this Vietnamese temple and read about its history. It was built by leaders in the local Vietnamese community who then sought out monks to live in it. For, according to the website, a temple without monks or nuns is like a house without furniture. I was beginning to recognize a remarkable uniformity in the structure of Asian Buddhist communities regardless of their land of origin. Monastics play much the role of house pets that can teach dharma. Cute. People delight in offering them generosity and hospitality. Because these renunciates need so little, the people receive the benefit of a clergy to guard against intruders and keep mice at bay at relatively little cost. The structure and the atmosphere of generosity in these temples is quite distinct from the non-Asian Buddhist centers. This was a jewel of wisdom to take home.